It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I'm all dressed up with nowhere to go. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today... Yeah, we're going to talk about something cheerful, right, Lauren? Uh, nope. Nope. We're, we're going to talk about the future of burial. Yeah, this was actually... When I, when we started talking earlier this week about what podcast sort of topics do we want to look at, uh, this was one I sent around, buried, if you will, in a list of several... Uh, and I, being the goth kid at heart that I am, was like, oh, hey. Let's I, do this let's, one. Let's do the one talking about death. Part of this is because uh, I, I've, I've kind of had it on the brain more than usual lately because I uh, got to be on a, on a panel with uh, Julie Douglas for her new show, uh, Stuff of Life, in which we were talking about how how people process death in our culture. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a really interesting discussion. Um, uh, Julie and I got to go interview a professor – who studies death culture and and that was a really fascinating thing the one of those episodes is up another should be up soon Let, let's mention it now while we're talking about other shows uh joe you guys over on stuff to blow your mind recently did an episode about burial correct uh not well depends on what you mean by recently robert lamb and i on the, the other podcast i do uh we did a stuff to blow your mind episode called human remains past present and future in september of 2015 
Wait, okay. September? No, it wasn't September. It was October. It was October 13th. 2015. Ah, uh, uh-huh. sort of, uh, kind of getting into the spirit of Halloween, I imagine. Right, yeah, it fit our October theme. All, all, all month we do creepy stuff. That's fair. So, as opposed to other times when nothing you say is creepy at all. <laughs> right. Since, okay. Since, since we're talking about other shows, I'll go ahead and mention this. Uh, not that you could listen to it or see it, although there's a documentary where I briefly appear in, in it, uh, where I, I was doing this. I did a, a two-man show. I wrote and acted in a two-man show about the history of burial practices and funeral practices. And we performed it uh, at uh, uh, at a cemetery, a historic cemetery here in Atlanta. The historic Oakland Cemetery, I yes, believe. where Margaret Mitchell uh, is buried. Yes. And uh, uh, two different people acted in that um, uh, besides myself, Bernie Clark and uh, Nick Tukoski, who are both local artists, Madmen types here in Atlanta, and I think they would appreciate those labels. But oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we did this this sort of comedic uh, grave diggers from Hamlet type presentation. Uh-huh. So I've been fascinated by this for quite some time. Not just the future of funeral practices, but the present state and and how we got to that. Now we're not going to go too far looking into the past. We're really going to talk about. What goes on today and how that might change over time and why it might change. Uh, yeah. And so, okay. So, so we're going to, we're going to be talking about some, some very serious kind of topics, yes. but, uh, but we're, we're all going to die, you guys. Yeah. And, and this is a thing that we all have to deal with well, in our lives. Kurtzweil's not. Okay. Well, fair enough. Everyone but Kurtzweil <laughs> is going to die. Uh, so yeah, so 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 let's so let's get into it. Uh, yeah. t- today, uh, and apparently uh, in countries other than the United States, embalming is not very is not a very common practice at all. But here, it's it's quite common. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of like the average American might assume that embalming, the way we typically bury dead in funeral homes in the United States, is just how it's always been done. That's not the case. It's not the case here, and it's not the case in other parts of the world. We're largely going to be talking about the way it's done here in the United States because that's where we live. Uh, and also to cover all the different variations all over the world, that would be a series unto itself. Certainly. Um, but embalming is not mandated in the United States except in certain states under certain conditions. Uh, a few will require embalming if a body needs to be transported across state lines, for example. Uh, but that's not all the states. It's just a few. Uh, it, but it still has become kind of the standard practice uh, for multiple reasons. Um, there are some religions that forbid embalming. It is against their religion to to treat the body in that way. Uh, Orthodox Jews and Muslims both hold those beliefs. Uh, there are others as well that other uh, faiths that require the body to be cremated rather than buried. Mm-hmm. So it's not. Common you, all the way across the board. You might often find cremation in Hinduism. Exactly. That is, that is one of them. So uh, embalming in the United States didn't even become that standard practice until the Civil War, which makes sense. Uh, the Civil War, you had thousands of soldiers dying. And so they would be embalmed before the bodies would be shipped back to their hometowns. Uh, from that point forward, embalming became more of a standard process in funerals in the United States. Uh, it's really all about preservation. Yeah. In a weird way, I would almost say that embalming is a physical – it's like the science of the denial of death, a technological realization of pushing death out of our out of our view 
uh, by making it look for as long as possible like you you're really pretty much still alive. Yeah, it's it's mainly to stave off the decomposition process as long as possible. And I I agree with you, Joe, that that is largely I think due to our 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 philosophy, our feelings about death, and they're pretty complicated. But ultimately, uh, I think a lot of people like the idea of of this this preservation so that you can almost compartmentalize it in your mind and and it it doesn't have as strong an effect emotionally on you in that way. Julie and I got to talk to 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 Liv Stutz, Dr. Liv Stutz is is the uh the professor's name, a little bit about this very subject and uh she she put forth um a, a theory that has been discussed in in the industry some that that death practices like death rituals for the living are a sort of way of of dealing with a, an in-between state of of the body of the deceased. Mm. Uh it's sort sort of like a transitional state, a sort of coming of age ceremony almost, like a, huh. a or, or like a like like an end of age ceremony. A sort of like like prom but for, you know, dead bodies. And <laughs> which makes sense considering the, the song I quoted at the beginning of this. It's very much like a prom for for dead people. Uh, right? And so um and, and so yeah, so so it's it's letting the living take the deceased uh, through this this in between stage into the finality of being buried. Mm. Right, but so when so there are psychological reasons we do this, but doing it doesn't come without cost. Oh yeah, yeah. The the practical application is uh, pretty morbid. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there's there are costs both psychologically. Uh, financially and environmentally, as it turns out. So, and that's sort of what we're going to focus on today. Yes, yeah. some of these alternative methods of dealing with uh, bodies after we have died in ways that might be less costly and less environmentally destructive. In some cases, they might be more so, but they're super cool. But we'll get into <laughs> that. So, uh, if you're talking about the the traditional embalming process, the way it works is the body is uh, is is stripped of clothes. It's washed. Uh, then you use a, a tube with a needle. You inject the needle into an artery and you, uh, the tube is connected to an embalming machine, which pumps embalming fluid into the body. Um, that fluid is specifically designed to prevent bacteria from growing uh, and other organisms as well, thus leading to the decomposition. So it's to preserve the body, usually long enough so that you can have your memorial service and your funeral service. Um, and we're talking about a pretty significant amount of this stuff per body, and then you think about how many people die every year. It really starts to add up. So you use about a gallon of this embalming fluid for every 50 pounds of the person. So, or uh, 3.8 liters per every 23 kilograms or so. That's right. So it's a fairly significant amount of this stuff. And embalming fluid typically... It's not bio-friendly. Not in the U.S., in the U.S., it typically contains formaldehyde as one of the ingredients, and that's a carcinogen. So you, there are a lot of people who are concerned about this carcinogen finding its way into the water table, you know, eventually uh, uh, moving from the body into the soil and then getting absorbed into that particular ecosystem. And uh, it's, it's such a big concern in some places that they have moved – the places that still practice embalming – they have moved from that to other types of uh, chemicals. In the UK, uh, there was actually a call for a ban of formaldehyde back in 2010, and the industry started moving towards using uh, 
glutaraldehyde. Uh, glutaraldehyde. Oh boy, I I don't know if I'll ever say that the way it's supposed to be said. But it's glutaraldehyde-based fluids, which are less toxic than formaldehyde. Uh, so that's it the. Sounds Im- like you don't talk about glutaraldehyde all that much. Not so often, really. I don't. It doesn't come up in most of my conversations. Weird. Yeah, I hang out with a different crowd these days. We mostly talk about Pokemons. <laughs> all of the Pokemons. Yeah, we don't know what they are. We just. Talk about them. And like, how you've got to grab them all. Yeah, we you know, know we know there's some grabbing of Pokemons, and it, that's about it. To make a little transition, you know what you do with Pokemons is you put them inside a container. <laughs> like a <laughs> almost like a coffin, except it's a ball. Uh. Yeah, we're gonna talk about coffins now. So also sometimes in the US called caskets, although that term is not uh frequently used in places like the UK or Australia, not for a coffin anyway. A casket may just be a container for jewelry. But in the US, coffin and casket tends to be used pretty much interchangeably. So these days, they uh, the, the standard coffins that you would find are really meant as a barrier between the body and the elements. They're not impermeable normally. They're made out of things like wood or metal, and they're lined with some sort of plush material. But there are some coffins that come with a rubber seal to make them as close to impermeable as possible. The idea being that this you, way... You really don't want this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, the idea being that it's supposed to prevent water from coming in. Because as the grave digger from Hamlet will tell you, water will ruin a body. Um, <laughs> uh, it's actually in the speech. Oh, uh, well, yeah. It's, it's preventing preventing water from getting in and preventing uh, the, the materials that make up the coffin and the contents of the coffin from getting out. Yes. So uh, that's really what the purpose is. But uh, you don't want a truly impermeable coffin because as a body decomposes, it produces methane gas. If you have a container that has no way to vent the gas, that pressure builds and builds and builds until, yes, coffins can and sometimes do explode. We mentioned this in our Stuff to Blow Your Mind episode, exploding coffins. Yeah, it's happened both in coffins that are buried under the ground and coffins stored in mausoleums. Did you talk about any mausoleums with explosions? Because there have been a few cases where mausoleums have, have been severely damaged through exploding coffins. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so there <laughs> uh, are some coffins that are designed to vent this gas occasionally. They're called burping coffins. That's – they could have called it something else. They could have. But well, they, they could have called it farting coffins. That would have been worse. <laughs> so – I don't know. For some reason, I'm less grossed out by farting coffins. Than burping than coffins? burping coffins. I mean, it's a generational thing, I think, at this point. Okay, that's that's fair enough. I, I, I just burping reminds me of Tupperware. I anyway. Yeah, just, you could, that's how you could tell it's still fresh. Um, so the coffin <laughs> is then placed in what is called a burial vault, which is a sealed chamber meant to protect the coffin from the weight of the earth that's above it, as well as any machinery that has to pass over it. So, typically, U.S. cemeteries are using something like a backhoe in order to dig the grave site or the internment site, as they sometimes call it in uh, the funeral business. Yeah. Um, Cause they don't like to, they don't like to use words that make people think of death, which is one of those weird culture things that I, I can totally understand on one side. And I think is totally weird on the other side. Uh, it's also relatively recent. Uh, a lot of the, well, I mean, funeral homes didn't even really exist until uh, around world war two or so when it yeah. became, it started becoming so common to have embalmings that we needed a whole uh, industry to yeah. to offset it because embalming isn't the kind of thing that you that you can DIY at home. You know the uh, the big one in my hometown, the Strickland Funeral Home. No, no relation no? as far as I know. Ah, yeah, small town in Georgia, Strickland Funeral Two Stricklands. Home. 
Yeah. yeah apparently not related, not to, related to my branch. Uh, if they were, those that would be the family members we would be mooching off of because funeral directors tend to make a lot of money. Um, at any rate, so we've got we've got the burping coffins, we've got the vaults that we've talked about. They, they the vaults are typically lined with either concrete or steel, so that they can uh, create this the support system so that the the ground does not cave in. Right. While mm-hmm. machinery is driving across it, if you um, don't have a vault, the ground will tend to sink. Yes, uh, sure, sure. So, so this right, this this protects the coffin, and it also protects the environment from the coffin and right. the contents of the coffin. <clears throat> or you might say the appearance of the burial grounds. That yeah, that's also a case. Like it would be somewhat disturbing to walk up to a cemetery and see areas of sunken earth around. I mean, it might feel a little weird. You might feel like you're in a Romero film. For one uh, also, grass might stop growing there because of toxic compounds in the coffins or the embalming fluid. That also could happen. Stuff like that. So there is a growing concern, uh, which is probably pretty clear from our conversation so far, that the traditional approach in the United States to funerals is environmentally harmful through many aspects. Uh, you've got the formaldehyde, which is a chemical concern. Again, not everyone gets embalmed before a burial, so it's not always a a factor, but it's common enough where it's it's more of the rule and less of the exception. Uh, also, you've got the fact that you're using woods, often fairly rare woods, for a lot of these coffins. Oh, and, and they're beautiful, and that's the point. But yeah, but it's not necessarily sustainable wood that you're that's being used for these coffins. So there's that environmental factor, and there's also the the concern about just the fact that cemeteries take up a lot of open space. Oh yeah, right. So that's and space that could be used for something else, especially in uh, high concentration areas. Yeah, where, like I, I've read about the the problem in New York of well, where are we going to bury people? We're just we're out of places. Same in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. That's another. I mean, it's a really big problem. Uh, mausoleums are off, often a, a solution to that because, uh, and I'll talk about them a little bit more in just a second, literally in just a second. Uh, oh, it's like a it's like a skyscraper for bodies. Yeah, and we'll call, talk about more about that idea in greater detail later too. So that that kind of brings us to this this concept of entombment as opposed to burial. Mm-hmm. So entombment often you have a lot of the same uh, processes that lead up to the stage of burial, except of course instead of burying someone in the ground. You're putting them in a crypt or a tomb or a mausoleum above ground. And there are a lot of different reasons to do this. Uh, one is if you happen to live in a place where the soil is not good for digging in, whether it's too rocky or it's too sandy, it won't support itself, it'll collapse in on itself too easily. Or the water table is too close to the surface of the ground where you can't dig down very far before you hit water. Yeah. There are a lot of mausoleums in uh, New Orleans. Yeah. Which also, and, and it's not just the water table there, it's also the propensity for flooding. Right. That is a big concern. Yeah. New Orleans cemeteries are amazing. Uh, that was one of my favorite things to do, oddly. I'm not a macabre person in general, but but the cemeteries are Gothic and gorgeous and creepy and awesome all at the same time. And there's some amazing stonework in some of these these uh, cemeteries in New Orleans. And it's all above ground because they couldn't dig down to uh, to bury their dead. So entombment is definitely one of those things that uh, is common in certain parts of the country and the world. But when we get to mausoleums, the the interesting thing there is that you can be more conservative with your space. That's one of the solutions to this problem of having a lot of open space that you would have to dedicate to a cemetery. Um, they can hold lots of unrelated people. It's kind of like a cemetery, but 
in almost like a file cabinet kind of way. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and, and that doesn't make them uh, make them any less lovely than cemeteries can be. I've I've, yeah. I've had the opportunity to visit a, a number of, of really beautiful, uh, uh, like large structure mausoleums. And yeah, like in, in Florida, mostly where it's sea above reed, groundwater being right. an issue. Yeah, ground and water table. The whole the whole way these things come about. They're very expensive initially, but but that expense can easily be distributed amongst the population. And then individually, the the process of having someone interred in a, a mausoleum can be much cheaper than a traditional burial, depending upon the situation. Um, and they can be very lovely, respectful places. It's not like it's, you know, a, a terrible alternative. Um, it also depends upon how you view what should happen to someone after they pass away? That also leads us to cremation, which is the other major way of of uh, of of saying goodbye to someone after they've passed on, and is one that is mandated by certain religions as well. So, before cremation, obviously, what you would want to do is remove anything that would not incinerate properly, uh, anything artificial like an artificial heart or prosthetic. Um, sometimes even things like hip replacements, things like that can be removed so that you can then uh, place the body in a flammable coffin and put it into the incineration chamber. A very high powered flame is used to incinerate the body. It usually takes between two to three hours, depending upon the size of the body that we're talking about. Um, the ashes you get back are really sort of the, the calcified crumbled bones that are left. All the other yeah. tissues are essentially vaporized in this process. Um, but, Fire pretty much breaks down everything. I wasn't I, when I was reading our. We have an article at How Stuff Works about how cremation works. That goes into much greater detail about what happens to each type of tissue throughout the cremation process. Mm-hmm. And as I read it, I thought that's not necessary for us to include in this for it to be <laughs> informative. But if you want to learn more, I highly recommend reading How Cremation Works at HowStuffWorks.com. Yeah, because it will. It, it will, will definitely tell you. inform you. Yeah. Uh, now you mentioned about the uh, the cremains people receive. Mm-hmm. Are, they're often referred to as ashes, but of course they're not the like we were saying. They're not the ashes of the soft tissues of your body. Right. They're the ground up bones. Yeah. Your I bones think that's are, the thing a lot of people don't know. Yeah. Your bones calcify, and they they essentially just crumble in the process of this mm-hmm. of this uh, cremation. Um, and so that's what you would receive uh, in the cremains. They must be raked out in the end. I believe so. Uh, it's really, by the way, tricky to estimate what's the carbon footprint of this process. So obviously you're talking about using a lot of energy to burn a body uh, that's going to have some sort of carbon footprint. But a lot of different factors will take part here. We're talking about, again, the size of the body. It's a larger body. It's going to take longer. So it's going to require more energy. Uh, it's also the time of day, apparently. I didn't know this, but apparently the time of day also depends on uh, – determines hmm. how big a carbon footprint is generated um, and whether or not uh, the crematorium is doing this on a case-by-case basis or in batches, essentially. Uh, so a lot of those factors are make it impossible for us to really say what the carbon footprint is, except to say there is a carbon footprint here. Uh, so you are – you know, it is it is not a carbon negative or carbon neutral kind of approach to mm-hmm. disposing of a body. 
Well, so in case you were being environmentally conscious when you're trying to do that. Oh, uh, yeah. Which I mean, you know, is is especially especially in these are modern times. That is absolutely a concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and all of these practices uh, do have these environmental impacts. And and right, you know, like like a lot of people are living a lot longer, and that's wonderful. But we but we do have to take this kind of stuff into consideration. Yeah. No. It's it's. And I think on an individual basis, it's a lot easier to have this conversation than rather talk about large groups of people. Because then when you talk about large groups of people, it sounds like you're mandating something. Oh, sure. sure. And, and we certainly of course never do that. It's so deeply personal. Yeah. I mean, you know, the grieving process is incredibly personal. But there are some interesting alternatives that have emerged over the past few years for people who want to look into something else. For you know to to happen to their body after they pass on, so that uh, it falls in line with their individual philosophies. And one of those that's growing in popularity is the natural burial concept. The funny thing about this is there's really not that much to it. Yeah, it's actually about as basic as it gets. So you're essentially getting rid of a lot of the stuff that's involved in your yeah. traditional U.S. burial system. Bye-bye formaldehyde. Yep, you don't use embalming fluid. Bye-bye vault. Yep, you use a very simple uh, biodegradable uh, coffin made out of... Or no coffin at all. Or no coffin at all. Maybe just like a shroud or some kind of uh, cloth. Yeah, I, I think I think most people look at... At least some form of coffin. There's probably a psychological element to that that I am not qualified to speak on. But uh, the ones I've seen have largely been biodegradable materials, sustainable materials as well. That's another important part of it because part of the philosophy of the natural burial is to reduce the environmental impact of your passing as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And so you want the body to be able to deteriorate naturally, and that includes the, the whatever coffin or other like wrapping or whatever is around you uh, as well. So uh, I've actually seen some really interesting uh, solutions to this. A lot of interesting coffins, like some that are gorgeous in their simplicity uh, made out of stuff. uh, I've seen cardboard coffins. So those would degrade pretty quickly. Um, I've seen bamboo and banana leaf coffins, uh, rattan coffins, seagrass Lots of these sort of natural materials, yeah. and they they look really nice. I mean, they're it's almost like a very large basket in mm-hmm. many of these cases, but mm-hmm. they look very nice. Uh, and then there's also the ecopod, which sadly right now is no longer available. It's temp- at least temporarily unavailable. I guess the the operations in the UK uh, entered in some sort of financial difficulty or something. I know that the company hopes to open up. Uh, handmade operational system in the North America continent somewhere, but I don't know what the status is on that. But the Ecopods were really cool. They're made from recycled newspaper. And they have a very interesting shape to them. Uh, the very outside is actually coated with a different type of paper, so it has a very kind of classy look to it. doesn't quite look like a coffin. It has, it has almost a... a, a sort of a space age type of shape. You really have to look at a picture of one of these things to kind of get an idea. But um, I like this idea because if I went this route, I could ask that they just coat my entire uh, coffin with the Braves win AJC front page (laughs) from when the Braves won the world series. That would have been amazing. (laughs) Uh, But 
you know, that's not necessarily what I'm planning on doing. And also Ecopod is not <laughs> currently available. Uh, and if you're interested in having a uh, open, open casket memorial service or anything like that, um, there are options for using dry ice to preserve the body rather than embalming fluid. Right. Dry ice or refrigeration, both of which are much more environmentally friendly than using embalming fluid and uh, won't won't uh, halt the or or slow down the decomposition process once you're buried. So for this to work, you also have to have a place to bury people. Yeah. You can't just bury them anywhere. Burial is a <laughs> – well, well, It's frowned upon at any rate. Yes. No, I mean – I mean you could ask Google disposal or Siri, of, Disposal but, of corpses is a highly regulated thing. And yes. it should be, yeah. It's a lot, for lots of different reasons it should be. But in the United States, there are, there are several natural uh, burial grounds. In the UK, there are more than 200. So the UK, it's been – embraced much faster than here in the United States. Uh, they tend to be in areas that are, you know, these natural landscapes, a lot of them are in forests. And typically you might just use something as simple as a rock or a, a native tree as a marker for that, that burial site. So again, very green. Some of the places actually use GPS coordinates to mark the site. So you would use your GPS system to find a, a particular spot, and mm-hmm. that would be where your you you know the the person you cared about was buried. I kind of like that idea too, the idea of not leaving any any physical thing there, so that it's a, as untouched a landscape as you can possibly make it. Yeah. Um, and there are a couple of different variations on this. There are hybrid burial grounds. That's where you can pr- find both the traditional burials and the um, the natural burials all in one general region, one general, one cemetery, essentially. Uh, there's natural burial grounds, which are kind of the medium. Uh, that's where they practice land stewardship and restoration planning, and they can only use that land as a green cemetery. It cannot be used for any other purpose. And then you have conservation burial grounds that go a step further, where their their conservation strategy goes to the point where they're actually looking at ways to protect and restore local wildlife and habitats, uh, as well as act as a natural burial ground. And uh, I, I really like this idea a lot. Like if, if I didn't have my other plan in place, as sinister as it is, then I would probably go with this approach. And as a way of uh, – no, I'll tell you what my sinister joke plan is at the end. <laughs> but the the, uh, the there's an actual group called the Green Burial Council that has formed to try and – create standards for this because clearly you want to uh, follow very careful protocols to make sure that you're being respectful both of the land and of the people. It's very important. And they also want to make sure that no one gets away with calling their operation a natural cemetery or green cemetery while practicing uh, things that are against that philosophy. Yeah. So the greenwashing is what we're talking about this. And greenwashing is a problem in, all different industries where they're claiming to be it's, it's a mo- where it's a marketing term rather yeah. than an actual practice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Where, where you're like, hey, we can get more consumers if they think we're being very environmentally conscious. So let's call this the green approach. Uh, side note, little tangent. I'll never forget when I was I, I, I was going to attend CES one year and I got a big box in the mail uh, that was related to CES. I was like, I wonder what this is. And I opened it up. Inside the big box was a long, smaller box, but it was a long box 
I opened that up, and inside it were a pair of AA batteries that were called green AA's. And I thought, if you are trying to create <laughs> batteries that are supposed to be green, don't pack them in a long box and then pack that in an even bigger box and send it. Like, that's ridiculous. Wow. <laughs> that would be greenwashing. At least I would argue that would be greenwashing. Uh, so let's talk about some other uh, uh, options besides natural burial. This other one, this next one is, it gets a little gooey. It certainly does. Uh, for those of you who desire to be literally washed down the drain, you do have an option. Uh, this is known as alkaline hydrolysis, and it's often used to get rid of animal carcasses and also medical cada- cadavers at the Mayo Clinic. Oh, huh. So this is not like a uh, – we might think of it as a future technique, not because it's something that's still being developed, but just because it hasn't been so widely adopted. Uh, yet. Culturally right. speaking, it's yeah. futuristic. Right. Yes. So it's known by several different names. The The process itself is alkaline hydrolysis, but it's also known as resomation or liquid cremation or sometimes bio-cremation. And here's the basic gist of it. You put the body inside a gigantic steel container mm-hmm. uh, and this, this big steel cylinder with a mixture of water and potassium hydroxide, which is lye. And then you heat that up Mm -hmm. to like 300 or 350 degrees Fahrenheit under high pressure. And this liquefies all of the soft tissue, leaving only the bones behind. And then the liquefied body can simply be washed down the drain. And the bones then head on to the cremulator, which is not unique to this process. A cremulator is also used in cremation. But... Great name for a thing. Very yeah. cromulent name. I, I, thought, I, I didn't know that that was the name for that thing. Cremulator. I, I thought immediately that that had to be one of the robots from Futurama. Yeah. Right there next to the crushinator. Right. Exactly. But the cremulator, well, it is sort of a crushinator. It, it turns your bones into a fine powder uh, that can then be taken away by the family or loved ones of the deceased. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this process reportedly uses less energy and produces fewer airborne pollutants and carbon emissions than traditional cremation. Uh, but it is not without its opponents. It has faced some political opposition, like it's only legal in some places and not in others. I found one interesting article, a June 2012 article for the Springfield News Sun in Ohio, uh, by reporter Kelly Wynn, and it was called Controversial Liquid Cremation Sought in Ohio. And so this was talking about how at the time some funeral homes in Ohio were trying to adopt alkaline hydrolysis, but they were facing opposition. Um, I'll, I'll just read a little section from it. Uh, the Catholic Church is opposed to the idea, and that opposition has prompted State Representative Ron Mag, chairman of government of the Government and Elections Committee, to remove language from House Bill 481 that would have made alkaline hydrolysis an acceptable form of disposition. That's a great word. Disposition in Ohio. Uh, Mag, who is a Catholic, said he felt uncomfortable about the process and spoke to a Catholic church leader. The process didn't seem respectful to me, and that's why I contacted the Archdiocese of Cincinnati to get their opinion, Mag said. They objected to that type of disposal of the body. So there are obviously some cultural factors at play sure. here with, uh, with the acceptance of new methods of dealing with the body. And and that's to be expected, I think, because how we deal with our dead is something that's very emotionally charged for people. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of association between decomposition and corruption. Mm-hmm. I think there's this idea that decomposition is somehow 
representative of corruption of the body. And any process that would speed that up, I think, would automatically create kind of a balk response with people who who sort of made that association. And it's I'm not saying that it's an, an uh, one that should, anyone should feel badly about. I mean, again, this is a very personal sort of thing. Oh, right. Of course. Um, uh, personally, this this approach, I thought, sounded very interesting to me. I don't know how I would feel knowing that someone I loved had chosen to go through this process. I, I like intellectually, rationally, I'm perfectly fine with it. Uh-huh. I don't know how I would re- react emotionally if I were actually in the position where I knew someone I loved was going to be uh, uh, dissolved in this way. It might that might make me bulk at it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I can't thinking about it really see that there's anything less respectful about this than about burning people with a flame sure. or about pumping them through uh, full of formaldehyde and burying them in a box. Other than the fact that we just have the cultural inertia of yeah. those other methods oh, right. that, you know, I, and again, I don't think it's necessarily a rational thing. It's purely emotional. Yeah. But, but, you know, cultural mores and, and social mores, that sort of thing, they have a big impact on our personalities, sometimes larger than we expect uh, oh, and course. so, you know, but that that's that's a really interesting way. What if I wanted to, I don't know, turn myself into an icicle, then explode into a million pieces? Is there, is there a method for that? Yep. And this one, I'm, I, I'm, I had never heard of it before we started composing these notes. And I'm really excited about this one. This sounds like <laughs> like if you'll forgive my like Mr. Freeze style pun here, the coolest way to go. <laughs> Thank it you. It is the coolest. Uh you're welcome, Joel Schumacher. <laughs> <laughs> he directed that one. I know, no, I know, I know. Oh, chill out, Jonathan. Um, so, uh, so this is called promession, and essentially, this is freezing, shattering, uh, and then freeze drying your body into a powder that can be buried. So, so after death, you take the body and you freeze it. You submerge it in liquid nitrogen to deep sub-zero temperatures. And this makes it uh, brittle and crystalline. So once the body is frozen solid in this crystalline state, it is subjected to mechanical vibration. You sort of put it in a rock polisher. Right. <laughs> it's a... Just a, a a chamber that vibrates uh-huh. at a high frequency. Yes, and this shatters the frozen remains and eventually transforms them into a fine gravel or sandy consistency. And then you use a vacuum chamber to sort of boil the moisture out of the resulting powder. Mm-hmm. And this is essentially what the process of freeze-drying is. Uh, so you freeze-dry it, and then you remove any metal fillings, implants, prostheses from the powder – and then what's left behind can be buried in a shallow grave. Mm. And in this, and we often say buried in a shallow grave is kind of like a, uh, like sneak, you know, you kill somebody and bury them in a shallow grave. But in this case, it's a positive thing because, uh, the, the body is not recognizable as a body, but it can still contribute back to the ecosystem right. and nourish the soil. I, I didn't mean to snicker except for the fact that you said we often say it and, and, and just the way you're putting it, like, yeah. Daily basis. I'm right. talking about shallow graves. Oh, yeah. That's every Wednesday. Uh-huh. So 
so is anyone actually doing this? Is this is this hypothetical? Or? Yes, right now it is. Uh, it is a proposal rather than gotcha. a real process. As far as I know, this hasn't been done to any people. Mm. Um, or, or if it has, I, I hadn't. I can't. I couldn't find evidence of it. But gotcha. it's been promoted by a Swedish company called Promessa, which uh, was founded by a biologist named, uh, and I'm afraid I'm going to mispronounce her last name, but I'll do my best. Her name is Suzanne Y. Masek. And I, uh, I might add that Wired UK ran a cool piece on her and on Promotion a couple of years ago called Freeze Drying the Dead Could Help Save the Planet. Uh, and one of the things that I liked about this uh, article was that it also uncovered this interesting turf war between this pro-Promotion faction in Sweden and then a pro-Cremation faction who insisted at the time that Promotion was, was never going to work mm-hmm. and it would just never come to market. Um, but anyway, she gave a quote to them in this article where she said, we don't see the dead body as the final end. Well treated, the body will support something new. Life will continue. And that is going to create a totally new relation to death and, and dying of the body. It also makes it possible to start talking about death. Uh, and I like her approach here because she's essentially – she's proposing a technology. Uh, now, I think it has been – it's pretty well accepted that – except among its critics in the cremation community, this would work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not being done yet. It's weird to think of a cremation community. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think in many ways it's similar to the idea of the natural burial, this idea of – Returning the body to the earth to yeah. become part of it again. The circle of life. I was going to say that too, so I'm glad you beat me to it. But yes, exactly. Uh, uh, similar to that is the Eternal Reefs idea. Now, this is a company that's actually based out of here in Georgia. Oh. Yeah. Um, and their idea is to take the cremains from someone. So you right. would. So it's not an alternative to not cremation. Al- not an alternative to cremation. It's actually cremation is part of this. But you would bring the cremains to Eternal Reefs. And they would use the cremains to uh, to mix with uh, concrete, actually, to create artificial reefs for marine life and then put those offshore to replace some of the natural reefs that have been destroyed over the course of the last century. And uh, really, in this case, again, it's, since it's not an alternative to cremation or anything, you might wonder, well, what's the deal? Are these artificial reefs only... Do they only work if you put human cremains in them? No. The idea here is that you're helping fund this process. You you are returning – like from a philosophical st- standpoint, you could think I'm helping give life to mm-hmm. other creatures by yeah. giving them a place to, to inhabit. It's, it's poetic and also uh, – right. And instead of potentially doing harm to an environment, you're, you're, you're doing good yes, with your funerary yeah. costs. Exactly. So it's it's really a way of giving back to the earth by paying in as part of your, your funeral fees to have this happen. So uh, I like the idea, although, again, it's not like it's an alternative to to cremation. It actually is just a, 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 another step. So instead of storing the remains in like an urn or something or putting them in a mausoleum, you would make them as part of a marine habitat. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, another process that we should talk about is one in which you more definitely preserve the body. Yeah, like <laughs> like like crazy preservation. We're talking plastination, which was developed in 1977. What a great word. This episode, full of great words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So plastination, well, I mean, you've got to come up with some pretty clever words to deal with uh, with death so people don't think about, you know, dying. But uh, plastination is a process developed in 1977 by Gunther von Hagens, who uh, was looking at a way of preserving body parts indefinitely. And it involves replacing the water and fat in a body with certain types of plastic. And you can use different types of plastic, and the different types will create different uh, effects. And the process has four steps. I'm not going to go into de- detail on each of the steps, but if you want to know what they're called, it's fixation, dehydration, forced impregnation in a vacuum, and hardening. Huh. Yeah. So, I feel like those are relatively illusionary all on their own. Yeah, you don't really need a whole lot of explanation to really get into <laughs> what that is all about. So, like I said, you use different types of plastics for different effects. Some of them are more flexible. Some of them harden to a point where you could actually polish the body part that you have uh, plastinated, uh, often used for, for medical purposes. Like if you wanted to do an anatomy class and you needed to show slices of the body so that medical students could identify where organs were, that sort of thing. That's a very important part of the oh, process. Oh, of course, of course. It's very useful. And and Von Hagen's developed this specifically for the medical community so that uh, doctors and scientists would have reliable models to look at that could last for, you know, indefinitely. Uh, of course, we've seen it used beyond that particular uh, uh, application, and I'll get more into that in just a second. Uh, so you might donate your body to plastination if you specifically wanted your body to be used uh, in the advancement of science. But there is some controversy around this, uh, largely around the con- the concept of consent. Uh, so plastination is probably most famously associated with the Body Worlds exhibits, which are they, they originated in Japan and have traveled the world multiple times. And there have been several cases of people accusing body worlds of using bodies that came from people who did not consent for their bodies to be used in this way. Now, supposedly, there's a list thousands of names long of people willing to donate their bodies to plastination for this specific use. But there have been at least some cases where there have been accusations that uh, some of the bodies came from Chinese prisoners who had been executed. That's a big problem. Uh, Some from... Uh, uh, Russian sources where, again, it may be that the case was that the people whose bodies were on display never gave their consent for it to be used in that way. Now, of course, Body Worlds has said that they are very much concerned with this. They don't ever want to use any body that wasn't uh, associated with consent. And there have been a lot of lawmakers who have said, if it comes down to it, we need to be able to say, can you show us the death certificate, the the signed consent? Yeah, the paperwork, right. Yeah, to prove From that either in fact, the person or at least the family. Right. Yeah. So that's where that controversy is. Um, that being said, I think that plastination itself, it serves a very valuable purpose, again, in that in that medical application yeah. of teaching. Uh, I think it's incredibly valuable. So let's talk a little bit about the future of cemeteries. Uh, one of the things that Lauren mentioned earlier kind of with the mausoleums was this idea of skyscraper cemeteries. And I can't believe we didn't touch on this in our history, our we future ta- of skyscrapers. Well, right. We talked about vertical cities, but we did not talk about vertical cities of the dead. Yes. Uh, which could be a thing. Uh, now, we talked about how open space is a precious resource in some areas. 
and that you know dedicating that open space to what amounts to dead people is problematic uh, in in a lot of different communities. But what if instead of taking up a bunch of space at ground level, you did the skyscraper approach? So you had level after level after level. You could take up a relatively small amount of open space and just build upward. It's the minus Morgul approach. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So uh, in 2013, there was an architecture student named Martin McSherry who presented a concept called the Vertical Cemetery. And it's a really neat looking design. It's a very kind of, it, it looks kind of like a honeycomb from the outside. It's white with all these, it's almost like a lattice work. And the idea is that coffins would fit in the gaps of that lattice. And you would use a crane to actually lift a coffin up to a higher level and slot it into the right spot. It would take up less ground space. And it was uh, specifically because there's a real land scarcity problem in Norway. So this is a, uh, this is this was seen as sort of a conceptual and yet practical solution to a real problem that is arising in Norway. And it is something that we could possibly see if people continue to choose to be buried, then this might be one of the solutions that we'll see in the future. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, statistically speaking, there's a lot more dead people on the planet than there are living people. That's true. It's funny how that works out. Uh, so there's there's also uh, some other interesting ideas, uh, some that are kind of similar to stuff we talked about before. Uh, there's the Urban Death Project, which sounds like a band, but is not. Or maybe it is, too, but it's also it's also an actual project that's proposing a way of dealing with the deceased. Uh, yeah, it could fit in uh, with the concept of natural burials. Yes, exactly. Architect Katrina Spade talks about this, and it's a process that would involve turning a body essentially into compost. And the process involves taking the body, wrapping it in a shroud of linen, and laying that body in a bed of wood chips and sawdust. Now, the body would then start to decompose and, over the course of a month, turn into compost. Um, new bodies would be added over time, and what happens is at the at the end of that month, you would extract the soil from the bottom, there'd be an extraction uh, mechanism that would allow you to harvest the soil from the bottom of this, uh, this, this uh, wood chip and sawdust pit, I guess. Uh, pit is probably not a word that they would, they would use there. <laughs> in their own, in their own marketing materials. Yeah. No. You don't want to think about throwing <laughs> them into the pit. Uh, but at any rate, you would extract the, the soil from the bottom and you could invite loved ones to come and take some of that soil home and use that in a garden, a kind of a way of remembering the person and incorporating them back into your life in a in a symbolic way. Uh, but and, it's also used in like parks and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and there, there's lots of other companies that are working with alternative processes for similar concepts. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure that you've seen some of them post uh, posted up on your social media feeds because they've they've. They're, they're they're really snazzy headlines. It's, yeah. You know, like like turn your body into a tree, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And and so you know, there, there's a few companies that are offering biodegradable urns and tree saplings as like a little paired unit. Uh, so you know, you plant the urn under the sapling, and your ashes help feed the tree. Uh, a more dramatic version is provided by this Italian startup company called Capsula Mundi, which buries a person in this egg shaped biodegradable coffin the, the corpse is in a fetal position inside of it and it can be planted under a sapling uh I, i'm not an expert on decomposition uh but you know while i appreciate the artistry of this of this version i suspect that something like the urban death project would would be better for the tree yeah overall i just worry about that particular approach if there's terrible flooding and erosion 
then you have a dead person emerging from an egg, and that would be awful. I think the cool thing about this, uh, the Capsula Mundi proposal, is that you could end up with your skeleton entwined in the roots of a tree. That's actually and really people, cool. People in the future who dig you up will find the roots going through your eye holes and everything. It's, and they're just thinking it's, like, it's an appealing idea. Like, in the past, trees preyed upon humans. <laughs> <laughs> These Lovecraftian trees of the 21st century. Oh, you've given me such a great idea for a short story now. All right, so uh, moving on, there's also a concept called the Future Cemetery. Uh, this is something out of the UK. The UK appears to be really kind of forward-thinking when it comes to the treatment of, of the dead. It's really interesting to me. For those who want the high-tech experience, they could look into the Future Cemetery. It offers an interactive approach that incorporates augmented reality, audio installations, and Pico projection, or Pico if you prefer, projection. <laughs> a Pico projection is the – they're very tiny projectors that you can fit right in your pocket. You can typically connect them to something like a phone and mm -hmm. uh, project it against the wall. Anyway, they use that for memorials in the cemetery. So imagine recording your thoughts – before you die, obviously, that could be displayed to someone using a smartphone app while looking at your gravesite, like hologram style even. Like, it'd be kind of cool. I would imagine, like, think about something you would just want to impart to future generations, even if it's just, hey, be cool to each other. You uh -huh. know, it'd be like, do a little Wayne's World thing, like, or, or not Wayne's World, but Bill and Ted thing, be excellent to each other type deal. Yeah. It's just kind of a neat idea. Or if you want to be cranky, you could be, get off my lawn, whatever you want. And then the person holds up the smartphone when they're looking at your gravesite. You pop up and you say the thing. I, I love that idea, right. honestly, for multiple reasons. Um, this particular uh, cemetery is actually located at Arnos Vale Cemetery in the UK. So it's just one part of their cemetery. It's kind of a, a, a proof of concept, ch ever-changing project, too. Like they're always incorporating new stuff into it. And uh, I really like that idea. But let's say that you set your sights higher than that. Much higher. Up into orbit. <laughs> uh, but since there is no up in space, you could be setting your sights much lower. Or or you could be setting your sights, but direction has no meaning. <laughs> at any rate, uh, this is an option that is for people who are less interested in minimizing their carbon footprint. Yes. We're talking about space burial. Uh, yeah. I feel like that's something that's kind of in name only, if you know what I mean. Uh, Well, I mean, it's not really a burial per se yeah uh by by the technical definition of the word but, but uh, it goes into space well okay so so there are a few companies out there that will send like a gram or so of your cremains up into space yes um and uh, th this has been made possible by uh, commercial and consumer space travel becoming more affordable and common um so you know you can you can take like a two-minute suborbital flight you can take a full orbital flight you can hitch a ride on a CubeSat that will uh, lose orbit and burn up during reentry a couple of years later. Uh, you can crash into the moon or you can leave Earth's orbit entirely. And these services range in cost from about a thousand bucks to over twelve thousand, depending on how far out you want to go. Yeah. Uh, someone I know. Well, no is probably too strong a word. Someone I met did this. James Dewan. Also known as Scotty from Star Trek. Oh, uh, right, right, yeah. Gene Roddenberry did it, didn't mm -hmm. he? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's also true. Timothy Leary. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So there, there's plenty of precedents for that. So this kind of brings us to the conclusion. I thought I would end by talking about what I plan on doing once I have uh, shoveled off this mortal coil. Go ahead. So the joke answer, which I would never really do, 
but I like to joke about it, is that I, I, I have a little bit of a reputation for occasionally irritating my wife. And so I said, what would be a way that I could continue to do that even after I'm dead? And I thought, what would what if I, I set aside a certain amount of money, had myself cremated, and that money goes to a person whose only job it is to come into my house and hide my cremains in a different location each day. <laughs> and before my wife is allowed to go to bed, she has to find me. <laughs> and that way I can continue to irritate her even after I'm dead. That's very strange. <laughs> I don't deny it. But for some reason, it fills me with glee. Not that I would expect my wife to even to, entertain to such hold a yourself like, to that. Yeah, I'm going to bed. Yeah. <laughs> like, but um, uh, actually, she'd be like, I'm not allowing someone into my house, which is a perfectly valid response. Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, what I really think I'm going to do is I, I really think I'm going to leave my, my body to science. I think I'm going to donate my body to science. Uh, I have not filled out official paperwork, which I really need to do. Now, I wonder if that means that you may eventually be subject to alkaline hydrolysis. If so, so be it. I I honestly, first of all, I'm going to be beyond caring at that point. So uh, I don't have a personal issue with it. Obviously, it would be something I would have to talk with my my wife Mm -hmm. because I do respect what she wants as well. Mm -hmm. And obviously... It'll be more for her benefit, assuming I predecease my wife, which I certainly hope that's the case because uh, <laughs> I can't bear the thought of the alternative. But, um, yeah, it would certainly be something I would talk with her about first. But personally, that that's like my first choice because I like the idea of continuing to contribute in some small way to uh, educating future generations. I consider that to be part of what I do here. Like, mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun, but I, I enjoy the idea. I get satisfaction out of the thought that we help educate people, um, not just entertain them, but teach them. And to do that after I'm alive, you know, once I've gone and passed away, uh, really just feeds back into that philosophy. So that's kind of why I look toward it. If I didn't do that, I think the natural burial is the way I would want to go. Yeah, uh, it, It's really appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much so. Like before I heard about natural burials, I was mu- I was leaning much more toward cremation because I didn't want to take up space. I'm very, I'm already very aware of too much, taking up too much space when I'm in areas. <laughs> I'm like, I'm constantly apologizing. I don't want to feel like that after I'm dead. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> We, we've spent our whole lives extracting energy resources from the life all around us in mm-hmm. our environment. It seems only fair that we should allow them to turn around and do the same thing back to us. Agreed. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's that. I just thought I'd conclude with that. And you also got some insight into my twisted sense of humor with what I planned <laughs> if uh, if all things were uh, were according to my my design. Do but, you uh, yeah. Do, do, do you have plans, Joe, that you would like to share with the audience? Uh, I guess not in particular, except I, I've had the same thought, really. I sure. mean, I, I, I like the idea. I don't have particular attachment to the use of a dead body after the person is dead. And so yeah. I think it'd be if if it can be uh, made use of for medical reasons or for medical research, any kind of scientific research, I think that's a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I, yes, I, I agree with you guys. Although, although I'm pretty excited about this, this freezing and uh, shattering. Yeah, shattering that, that thing. is pretty sweet. That's pretty rad. Like yeah. if, if if I can't help science, then I would like to be frozen and shattered. Uh, that's that's fair. It's pretty dramatic. Right. I think that would be. I think that would be. Uh, you know, that's a dramatic way to go. Yeah, I, I find a lot of these alternatives well, very, Lauren, very interesting. Lauren, you, you need to help defeat that cremation lobby that's keeping it down. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I- ice rather than fire. Ooh. And yes, yeah, so, somewhere, somewhere, someone can uh, can can put up a, a memorial or tombstone with the Robert Frost poem on it. It'll yeah. be great. Yeah, yeah, it's the only thing. Like, I, I think would I want any physical marker? And uh, at this point, I think I've done enough that's on the internet <laughs> that I feel that would be the internet is forever. It's yeah, that's enough for me. The question is again for for those who love me if they want. A place, like a to, place go. to associate. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, then that would be more for them than obviously for me. Uh, otherwise, I'm fine with with not leaving anything else. Just saying, you know, here's a guy who existed. Uh, you know, I, I have no romantic notion about that. Although it wouldn't mean that I would deny someone the opportunity to do what I did to Thomas Hardy's grave. All right. On that note, I'm going to wrap this up. Guys, if you enjoyed this episode of Forward Thinking, let us know. If you have questions, send them in. If you want to know what I did to Thomas Hardy, I'll tell you. But uh, <laughs> you can just send us a, a message. Our email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter. At Twitter, we are fwthinking. Just search FW Thinking in Facebook. We'll pop right up. You can leave us a message. We'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time and range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.